So our reading uh, today is John chapter 11, verses 17 to 44. And it's in your church bulletin. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall he live. And who, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could, he not, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around and that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips 
and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. This is the word of God. Thank you, Andy, for uh, reading and uh, praying for us this morning. We are, we are again um, making our way through the gospel according to John. What we've been doing is we've been looking at these different encounters that Jesus has had with various people because we want to know Jesus better And we want to experience his power and his love and his grace in our lives better. In fact, one of the ways you could summarize why we're doing this is so that we would believe in Jesus. John himself, the author of this gospel, uh, said that that's the whole point of him writing the gospel of John in the first place. So in John chapter 20, verse 31, it says this, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, you may have life in His name. That's why we're making our way through John together during this Lenten season. And today, in this story that we read, we get a picture of Jesus in His interactions with Martha and Mary and Lazarus and and, uh, in the miracle that He works in raising Lazarus from the dead. We get a perfect picture of what Matthew says about Jesus when the angel comes to Mary or Joseph and says, uh, you shall call him named Jesus for he will be Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? Anybody remember what that means? God with us. That's right. So the angel, angel announces to Joseph that this son that he is going to have by the power of the Holy Spirit with his mother Mary is going to be God with us. What does that mean? What does it mean for God to be with us here in this world? And what it means is, is that God himself came down and experienced life on this earth from the inside as a native, if I could put it that way. It's not like Jesus was a tourist kind of walking among human beings and going, oh, so that's how the, you know, this is how the other half lives. No, Jesus embodied a human nature And so he experienced life as you and I do, all the highs and all the lows. And that's what's expressed here in this passage. It shows us the the sheer force of Jesus because he raised Lazarus from the dead. But it also shows us his frailty. Jesus wept. It shows us his strength and it also shows us his, his sensitivity as he enters into the suffering of these sisters who have just lost their dear brother. In other words, the divinity of Jesus Christ and the humanity of Jesus Christ are so beautifully pictured in this passage that we just, we got to have a look at it together. Now, full disclosure before we get into it, let me just say this. In 2005, so that's quite a while ago now, 14 years ago, I started working at a new church, and when I got there, I was absolutely freaked out and terrified at the prospect of having to preach every week to this, this group of people. And I, I thought to myself, I've got to learn how to do this. And so I did what lots of young preachers do, is I started listening to 
sermons from all kinds of preachers trying to learn how to be an effective preacher myself. And a professor of mine that I had had in seminary, I didn't know him very well, but a guy who I had heard, a guy named Tim Keller, was one of the preachers that I looked up and started listening to. And in the summer of 2005, I heard him preach a sermon on this very passage that probably is the most powerful spiritual experience I ever had while listening to a sermon. It, it, I, think it, I think I could say it revolutionized my life. And that means that I cannot look at this passage now through any other lens. I just go back to that. And so I don't want to be accused of plagiarizing or anything, but any insights that I bring to you this morning from this passage probably came from him because I was just so influenced by that one sermon. So I just want to get that, I want to get that out of the way. There's three things, well, there's two things we're going to see in this uh, passage together, and they're in the sermon outline. We're going to see the perfect temperament of Jesus, and then we're also going to see the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, and then we're going to consider what you and I should do with that. And you have that outline on the back of your bulletin. And remember, of course, to have your questions ready if we have time at the end of the message to take a few. Okay, first of all, what we see in this passage is that Jesus has the perfect temperament. Let's set the stage once again here. I didn't, we didn't read it because it would have been too long. It would have been like last week, right? Good thing we had Allie reading. Allie's a really fast reader. So we made it through the passage last week, which was like super long. We would have had that again this week. So we didn't read kind of the contextual stuff to, to the passage that we just read. So let me fill you in. Jesus is with his disciples in a certain place. And a messenger comes to him saying that a very good friend of his is sick. And so sick that he's likely going to die. The messenger came in order that Jesus would rush to his side. But Jesus, strangely enough, doesn't do that. He stays where he is. And then after this friend dies, Jesus says to his disciples, Hey, let's go to visit my friend. And I'm sure that they're scratching their heads wondering, What on earth would you do that for? But off they go. And So Jesus arrives in Bethany now after his very close friend Lazarus has died. And as he's entering into the the town, one of the sisters, Martha, has come out. She's heard that he's on his way and she's come out to meet him and they have an exchange. And that's verses 21 through 25. And let me just read it to you again to refresh you about what was said. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. So she knew that he had this power to heal her brother. And that she, if he had just gotten there in time, then he wouldn't have died. And maybe she knew that Jesus tarried in Bethany, or uh, tarried before coming to Bethany. And so maybe she's actually, you know, kind of giving him a little shot. Saying, you know, if you had been here on time then this wouldn't have happened. But then she tempers that and says, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you again, or God will give you. Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha, who is Jewish and knows her Jewish religion very well, she says, I know that. He'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection 
and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though they die, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Okay. She responds with, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So she responds with faith to what Jesus says to her. Now, okay, pause there. Well, not pause, but now skip. That's what I mean. Skip there. Down to verses 32 through 35. Because now what's happened is Martha has gone back, told Mary, the master's here, he wants to talk to you. Now Mary comes out, okay, to talk to Jesus and listen to the exchange. This is beginning at verse 32. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She says the exact same thing that Martha said before. But now, notice the reaction of Jesus. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have they laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. He comes and sees. And then we read that very short verse that we should all be able to memorize. Jesus wept. What I want you to do is, is notice the comparison between these two scenes, the scene with Martha and the scene with Mary, because Jesus reacts very, very differently to the news in either case. With Martha, he speaks. With Mary, he's speechless. And with Martha, when he speaks, he speaks words of triumph. I am the resurrection and the life. Your brother will rise. I am the one who stands in glory and has power over death. He confronts the flow of her heart, you know. He, 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 uh, she's despairing. She's, she's sinking down in grief and despair. And Jesus speaks words of power to her. With Mary, he seems utterly defeated with her. She comes out full of grief. She comes out sorrowing. She says, my brother has died. If you had been here, maybe he wouldn't have died. But now he's gone and Jesus sees her overcome. And he becomes overcome at the same time. With Martha, he's got all this authority and control and confidence. And with Mary, he seems undone, just like her. This is the picture of Emmanuel. Because you see the highness of Jesus, the authority, the power, the divinity, but then you also see the lowness. You see the humanity of Jesus the empathy as he enters into his sister's suffering and he, he suffers alongside her. Keller calls it the ministry of truth and tears. With Martha, he confronts her with truth and encourages her and lifts her up. With Mary, he enters into her sorrow and her pain and he sheds tears right alongside of her. And the point is this, we need both if we're going to be healed. We need both. We need truth and we need tears. Think about your own life, okay? You know, you're in a tough spot. Maybe you screwed up royally and now you're paying the consequences of it. Or maybe you've committed a, a, a very serious sin. Or maybe actually, maybe... It's not your fault, but you're facing a really difficult circumstance and you are suffering and someone comes along 
and you share your suffering with them, you tell them about what's happening, whether it's your own fault or someone else's, is frankly irrelevant, but you, you share that with them, you pour out your heart to them, and what do they do? They say, well, you know, here's what you got to do. I've heard your problem, and here's your solution. You know, husbands do this all the time. They're so dumb. Their wife comes to them with a problem, and they listen to it, and they analyze it, and they go, well, the, the, the solution's obvious. Just do X, and your problem is solved. And their wife looks at them and says, why do I even bother? Right? And it's a good question. Why do you bother, ladies? Because your husbands are not very smart. Um, and even if they're right, even if everything they've said is true, you don't listen to them. Why is that? Because we need empathy. We need sympathy. We need understanding. We need to know that we are known. We need to feel like the other person they get it. And, and without that empathy, without that sympathy, without that coming alongside and understanding from your perspective, we tend to dig in our heels and say, no, I don't want to do what you're suggesting. That's, that's the truth alone side. But then there's the tears alone side too. You need both, okay? Because if you just have the tears alone side, you have someone who comes alongside you when you're struggling and you're suffering and something horrible has happened to you and they say, they're there, I understand, it's terrible, I know what you're going through, I, will, I, I, I rage against the, the, the evil and the suffering alongside of you, I weep with you in the face of evil, but they never have an answer, they never have a word of hope, they never have a, they never have a confrontation, they never have a, a, an, an offering of direction, you'll never climb out of it. You're stuck. And if you think about it, most of us, we're probably a little bit more one way or the other, right? We have kind of a bent. And uh, one of the ways you can, you can describe the bent is you can call it kind of the conservative bent or the liberal bent. Right? Because what's, what's the conservative bent? This is me, okay? Very truth-oriented, Tell me the truth, tell me what's going on, and I will analyze it, and I will use logic, and uh, I will try to help you fix it, and I will analyze it, and I will unpack it for you, and I will help you come to a conclusion, and then you need to execute. You know, the conservative bent is the bent that says, you know, it looks at poverty, and it says, yeah, you know, there's systemic problems, but frankly, it's, it really ulti ultimately boils down to personal responsibility. And if you really look closely, it's their own fault. That's the conservative bent, okay? I'm not saying that that's the way, the way you're supposed to, to behave. You're, you're the kind of person who is very direct, you're very honest, and people may come to you with, with their questions because they're looking for guidance and they're looking for counsel, but they'll probably only visit you once. Because the experience is kind of traumatic because you're just so truth-driven that they, they hear you out and they feel like, well, they're, 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 they just got it all together. They just got it figured out and they, you know, they don't get where I'm coming from. So you, you leave and you go somewhere else. And then, of course, there's the, the liberal bent. You know, you're a very good listener. Maybe this is you. You're a very good listener. You will listen for hours you will pour another cup of coffee or another cup of tea or another bottle of wine. Well, not bottle, glass of wine. You will, 
you will sit there and you will commiserate and you will say, they're there, and you will say, I understand. And you may even see the sin or the error in the person's ways, and, and, but you will not say it. And you'll get lots of visits because the person doesn't make any progress because you haven't been able to, to speak truth into their lives and cause them to make, to make changes that are necessary to move forward. This is our temperament. This is our default. Everybody has a temperament. I once heard it said that a temperament is your default way of dealing with life. And we all have it. What's yours? Are you a truther or a tearser? If you look at the life of Jesus, and certainly in this passage, you see he has no temperament. Jesus always has the right approach. He knows when to be bold and straightforward. He knows when to, to, when to sit back and be, and be very compassionate. And, and you know what? The, the author to the, to the Gospels, he actually says this about Jesus in the very beginning of his Gospels. He says in John 1 verse 14, we have seen the Son who comes from the Father full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Jesus has all those qualities, both those qualities in full and complete measure. He lacks nothing. He's got the perfect temperament. Why? Because he's the perfect man. We've been saying this all along. He's the perfect human being which is supposed to lead you to say, how can one person be like that? How can one person be so perfect? How can one person be, be so balanced, always knowing the right thing to say in the certain situation? Nobody ever can, can make anything stick. You see, the Jews have been trying for 12 chapters now to make something stick on him, and they cannot get anything to stick to him. And people are attracted to him because he is like nothing they have ever seen before. How can any human being be so perfect? It's supposed to make us ask that question. And if you're skeptical here this morning, and you're asking that question, come on, how can anybody be that perfect? I'm so happy to hear you ask it. Because you're not the first one. Anybody here who is a Christian asked that question at some point in their life about Jesus Christ. They said, how can this be? How can one person be like this? And they continued to investigate and they continued to read stories like this one and they continued to ask those questions until they came to the conclusion that he must be more than just a great man a great teacher, a cool guy to put on your t-shirt and say, Jesus is my homeboy. There's got to be more to him than that. What makes us want there to be more to him than that? It's the second point. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. We move on to verses 33 through 38. And you'll notice in verse 33, it says this, When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. Okay? Then in verse 38, it says, Then Jesus deeply moved again. So twice, it says that Jesus was deeply moved. Now, that, 
the translation is a little bit problematic and almost every single translation of the Bible doesn't quite get it right because the words there are actually used to describe horses that are stomping mad, that are snorting and bellowing. Those of you who know things about horses, you know that when they get angry, they, they kind of stomp their foot and they start to snort like crazy. That's the word that John uses to describe how Jesus is, is behaving here. It's a primal rage, okay? So we have Jesus weeping, and we have Jesus almost shaking in absolute anger. He's, he's, he's furious. He's, he's almost, his eyes are flashing with anger, and he's almost unable to control himself. And that leads to the question, who is he mad at? Jesus is angry, okay, but who is he angry with? He can't be angry with the mourners because the Mary and the Jews, so it says that the Jews were with her, so there were, there were women who would go with her to the grave to weep with her and alongside of her. Some of them might actually have been professional uh, mourners and many of them probably were friends, so there was this big crowd of people that would go with Mary to the grave to, to weep and to mourn with her and Jesus sees all of this suffering. Is he mad at them? No, he can't be mad at them because he was weeping too. He was doing the exact same thing. Well, maybe is he mad at himself? Is he saying, you know, if I had only left that hotel a couple days earlier and made it to Bethany in time, oh, why did I do that? No, of course not. He knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew exactly what he was doing. He couldn't be mad at himself. Well, who's he mad at then? Well, Jesus looks around and he sees all this suffering. Hold on. Oh, yeah. He looks around. He sees all this suffering. And there's only one conclusion that you can come to. He's mad at death. He's mad at death itself. Because death is what has caused all this pain and suffering around him. He's, he's angry at what death has done to the people that he loves. Now, think about this. This makes total sense. If, if you're a parent, especially, you get this, okay? Those of you who aren't parents, we've all been kids, so we've all had parents. So this can still apply. But if you discover, let's say, that your kid is being picked on, you can be the most reasonable, rationable, ra rationable, rational, calm, logical person in the world. But if you discover that your child is being bullied by somebody, let's say at school or on a sports team or whatever, you go absolutely ballistic. Maybe not outside, like maybe not in your behavior and your mannerisms and stuff, but in your brain, I know it. I know it because it's happened to me. You go, you go crazy. And you're thinking about, you know, kids, 10 years old, 12 years old, 13 years old, and you're picturing in your mind walking up to them and saying, let's go, you and me, shrimpo. You take out one of mine, I'm taking out one of yours. You, and you just lose all sense. You can be a very sanctified Christian holy person, but you lose all sense of proportion, and you just boil over with this, this instinct of protection and anger against that which is attacking which, that which you love. Well, how much more for the Son of God, our Creator, who sees 
his dear friends, Mary and Martha, who he loves so deeply, weeping over the grave of their brother. And because you are the son of God and you are not like you and me, you can see down through the corridor of history and you can see all the people standing beside all those coffins, weeping over the death of all their loved ones, and they are, he is furious at death for the heartache it has caused. And so Jesus steps forward toward the tomb. And John Calvin says that he is like a warrior entering into battle. Because you see, even though Jesus ultimately deals with death on the cross, this is where the battle is joined. Again, we didn't read it, but immediately after this story, the very next story that John records is a story of a meeting of the Sanhedrin where they finally decide, we got to kill this guy. And so Jesus approaches this tomb knowing if I'm going to spring Lazarus, I am signing my own death warrant. To raise him means to bury myself. It's like death is saying, you come after me, I'm coming after you. And Jesus says, bring it on. Why does he cry out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Because Lazarus is deaf, because Lazarus has all kinds of wrapping around his head and his ears are covered. Come on, he's dead. And Jesus has healed, raised people from the dead in so many different ways. He says, little girl, get up. Touches a guy coming out in his coffin. He's on his way to his burial. He touches the guy. He says, get off of there. But he cries out in a loud voice, Lazarus, get up. Because he's challenging death. He's staring Satan in the eyeballs and he says, you come for me, I'm coming for you. Don't forget, friends, Jesus came into this world to do something. He came to conquer sin and death and hell. And he came to do it from the inside. You know, people are asking all the time, why did Jesus have to die? Why did he do that? Why did the whole cross thing have to happen? What was that all about? And if it's true that Jesus is God, we all know that God cannot ignore evil. He has to deal with evil. He has to, he ha if he's a good God, he has to put it away. He has to get rid of it. Why did he do it on the cross? Because he is a God of truth and tears. Here's the truth. If you've been coming here a while, you've heard it before. If this is your first time, brace yourself. You are a wicked, wicked sinner more wicked than you're willing to admit. You are a rebel against the one who created you, and you are the reason the world is screwed up. That's what the Bible says. And yes, God could wipe it all away. God could take all the evil away. He could get rid of it, have a clean slate. But if he were to do that, he'd have to get rid of you too. He'd have to get rid of you too. If he's going to get rid of the evil and we're the cause of the evil, then we have got to go too. But Jesus didn't. Instead, he entered into the suffering to get rid of the evil and not get rid of us. He had to be a God of tears. 
If you've been coming here a long time, you've heard this many times before. If you haven't, brace yourself. You are more loved by this Jesus than you will ever, ever be able to grasp. You think you know love? You think your mommy and daddy love you? You think your husband loves you? You think your wife loves you? You think that best friend you've known since grade one or kindergarten that's been with you through thick and thin, you think they love you? You don't know love. Nobody, nobody loves you like this because Jesus was willing to let himself be destroyed instead of destroying you. He refused to leave us in our suffering and in order to do that, he had to enter into it and let it touch him. And you know, you don't even have to be a Christian to to understand that, at least to some degree. I don't know if you guys are, are into books, but I like books. This one's a, a book by a, an English or a Canadian writer, actually, Jan Martel. It's called Life of Pi. If you didn't read the book, at least watch the movie. It's a pretty good movie, too. But in the beginning of the book, the main character is trying to understand religion and different religions, and he goes to, to, to talk to a Roman Catholic priest, and he's trying to understand the cross and the atonement, what's called the atonement, and he doesn't quite understand it. And the Catholic priest reveals and explains to him what the point of Jesus going to the cross was. And it all of a sudden dawns on him, and this is not a Christian by any stretch, this is a a, a secular person, and it dawns on him what this must mean. And he says, once, this is on the front of your bulletin, once a dead God, always a dead God, even resurrected. The son must have the taste of death forever in his mouth. The Trinity must be tainted by it. There must be a certain stench at the right hand of God the Father. The horror must be real. Why would God wish that upon himself? Why not leave death to the mortals? Why, not make, why make dirty what is beautiful? Why spoil what is perfect? And the Catholic priest responds, love. Love, that's why. Now, I'm not saying uh, Jan Martel gets his theology absolutely right because I don't think there is a stench of death in heaven. Because when Jesus died, you see, when he did that, three days later, he blew the gates off of hell. He blew the, hinge, the gates right off the hinges. That's why he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He conquered it from the inside so that you and I, even if we have to go into death, even if we have to face it ourselves, and even all the loved ones that we have seen face it before us as we have stood in pain and sorrow beside their coffins wishing that this didn't have to be, you and I can know that there is light at the other side. There's life on the other side because he's the perfect sacrifice. Last thing, very quickly, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Well, go back to the words that Jesus shared with Martha. He said, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. That's verse 26. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Well, the first thing is, obviously, what we got to do with this is you got to believe. you got to believe in him while you live. Now listen, please listen, especially if you are under 30. Listen, 
you do not understand yet how short life is, and you think you've got tomorrow. You think you've got tomorrow. The Bible says today is the day of your salvation. You do not know if you've got tomorrow. I understand the feeling, okay? When I was 20, I thought I had forever to figure stuff out. Now I'm almost 45, and I'm like, hmm, I don't have much time to get stuff figured out. I think I'll just give up and believe. While you live, you have to believe. Now, for some of you, that means you need to admit that you need saving. You need to stop thinking that being a good person is good enough. You've got to stop thinking that you're a good person and that's good enough. Look at the cross. Look at the cross. Nobody was good enough. Jesus had to die. Please see that. Second of all, there's some of you who, who you have to believe that he actually did die for you. You think you're so bad. You think what you've done is so awful that he cannot ever, ever accept you. And there's an old hymn by Fanny Crosby. Anybody you recognize that name? Fanny Crosby. And she wrote an old hymn in which she writes, O perfect redemption, the purchase of blood to every believer, the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. There is nobody beyond the grace of God, including you. So you got to believe, and then second of all, you got to live. You got to live as though you believe it. Now, what does that mean? It means you have got to take that truth that you are loved by the creator of the universe and redeemed by him and saved by him and you've got to actually push it out into the way you face the world. In the way you face your life. One of the most beautiful examples of this in literature is from, from the tale of two cities, Charles Dickens. And in that book... There's these two characters, Simon Carton and Charles Darnay, and they're friends, and they're also, they're doppelgangers. You know what a doppelganger is? You know, the person who looks just like you? And uh, because Charles, or, or Charles and, um, and Simon, they love the same girl, but the girl chooses Charles. Tough one. And they get married, and they have a kid. But then the French Revolution happens, and Charles is an aristocrat, so Charles gets arrested, and he gets thrown in prison, and he is going to be beheaded as an enemy of the state. And Simon, he sneaks into jail, and he tries to, he tries to get Charles to trade places with him. And he says, listen, Charles, you have, you have a wife, you have a, a little child, let me take your place. I don't have any of that, and then you can live on. And Charles won't do it. He refuses, and so, so Sidney actually drugs him and has him smuggled out and then takes his place and doesn't tell anybody. And partway through the story, near the end of the story, Simon meets a, a woman, a seamstress, just a young slip of a girl. She's late teens or something like that, and, and uh, she, she is also facing her death. 
but she recognizes him and she's like, wait a minute, you're not Charles. Are you Simon? And, and, and he finally, he admits, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm Simon. And she said, wait a minute, are you dying for him? And he says, yes. And his wife and his child. And she is utterly amazed by this act of love and, and she confesses to him that she is absolutely terrified to face her own death. And so she asks him, if as they go toward the guillotine, if she can hold his hand. Because his act of sacrifice, his, his loving sacrificial uh, behavior, it, it, it gives her hope. And she says, if I could just look you in the eye as I face my death, I think I'll have the courage to face it. That's what I mean. You have to live out of what Jesus has done for you. You've got to let it shape the things that you're facing in your world. Some of you, it means you've got to, you've got to be honest enough to, to face the truth about some problems in your life. And you've got to be vulnerable enough and open enough to share those with somebody. Some of you, it means you have to be courageous enough to speak truth into someone else's life. For some of you, it, it means you have to believe enough that you can live without that sinful tendency that you've been battling for years and you can find more joy and hope by resting in Jesus than that thing could ever give you. I don't know. We all got problems. We all got problems. But I do know this. All of us has to learn, have to learn how to live out of this. Some for the first time. Many for us many of us, for the umpteenth. The end. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this incredible story of your grace and your power in our lives. You are Emmanuel, and you are like no one else we have ever known. Open our hearts to receive you. And teach us to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.